happened. A lot of people who have done it have testified to how it kind of lights a fire in their heart and that we would be praying for your best and blessing in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys can head upstairs. And guys, afterwards, as you go upstairs, we're going to be having communion together near the end. So when someone, someone's going to come up and say, it's time to come down for communion together, and if you could come down quietly and meet us down here, that would be awesome. See you later. It's the first Sunday of the month, and one of the things that I like to do is take time to reflect on how God is challenging me to grow. What are ways that I need to grow? I've taken Jesus' great commandment to love the Lord, your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I use that as a template. I break that up into four categories, heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationships, prayer, scriptural knowledge, and serving. And I challenge myself every month and invite God to put something in front of me that... Uh, where I need to get out of my, outside of my comfort zone. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. And growing as a Christian involves training. It involves taking up weight, taking up a challenge. It's maybe a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Discipleship doesn't just happen. It's an active engagement where we intentionally partner and cooperate with God's spirit in our lives and challenge ourselves to try new ways, to learn new things, to serve in ways that, again, push us beyond our own capacity or preconceived comfort zone. So what I'm doing this month is uh, I'm gonna be signing up for Freedom Session. I'm gonna be under uh, Pat McGibbon's leadership with the guys, and uh, I'm really looking forward to starting that. In the area of soul, I continue to do some tweaks around tech-wise habits. I took two weeks off of Facebook when I was down on the coast in early August, and it was not as hard as I imagined it would be, and it was really uh, good for my soul in a lot of ways that I, I won't get into right now, but it was really, really, really restorative, and I'm sort of creating new boundaries around, especially social media in my life, and that's been really, really good for both my prayer life and just my overall sense of connecting with God's presence and not having my brain flitting between all kinds of different distractions and stimulus. In the area of mind, usually this time of year before kind of the ministry start, uh, season starts, uh, kind of full on, I take some time just to clarify my own values, goals, pray over them, pray over the priorities. You know, every season of life that seems to be concentric circles of responsibilities that grow. And I want to make sure I'm not um, in a reactionary way, simply just trying to get it all done, but really intentionally moving into my September family-wise, professional-wise, and focusing on the central things, kind of like I talked about last week. You can get really absorbed in the circumference issues and not the central issues, and really going to God and starting with that center and saying, okay, God, what do you want me focusing on this year? And lastly, we have one month left of soccer Saturdays. Our soccer season here in Nelson starts up this uh, week and then continues just for one more month. And my team has been, which is the Covenant team, has been really, really fun to coach and they have four weeks left, and I really want to finish strong. Um, I hope that they've been practicing over the summer, but that's a really important way that I think that I can uh, love and care for and bless this community, especially that's an age. Not a lot of people want to spend two hours a week with age six to seven boys, a whole gaggle of them, and trying to get them organized, and sometimes you do kind of want to pull your hair out, but overall, it's really, really awesome, and my team is awesome, and uh, I'm also going to be getting, putting together kind of sort of care packages, thank you packages from our church towards them. 
I don't really have a budget line for that, I don't think. But if you want to just, uh, you know, f talk to me about helping to pay. I, usually I get like little packages from Pixie Candy or something and give them all and it ends up being like 80 or 90 bucks. But I usually say it's from our church and we love you guys and have a great winter season and we'll see you next year. So if you want to be a part of that, just let me know. Okay, we are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 this morning leading into communion. I'll read the verses. They'll be up on the screen as well. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So I've alluded to it in the previous weeks, but now moving into chapter four, there's a really, really big transitioning happening from the first three chapters of Ephesians to the next three. And some translations don't emphasize that trans uh, transition quite strongly enough. I would say the NIV translation, which I just read, doesn't do a good job of indicating to you that there's a big transition. But the ESV and the NRSV translations do a better job. So the ESV says this in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, that indicates that what's about to follow is a consequence of everything that was said before. This and this and this and this and this. Therefore, and so what's happening here is Paul in the first three chapters writing to this early group of Christians have been talking a lot about who you are in Christ, what your identity in Christ is, where you are. You're in Christ, but you're also in Ephesus. You're in the world. You have a mission here and what you have in Christ. This is all the things that God has done for you. These are just some of the ways that we can praise God and give thanks because of what he has done. And the first three chapters kind of cycle through those themes. This is who you are. This is where you are. This is the mission that God has for you. And this is what God has given you. This is what God has poured out into your lives collectively as a church, but also as individuals who've placed your faith in Christ. So chapters one to three are a lot of issues of personal identity, big picture worldview, and how all of those are connected to God's gracious, redeeming, restoring, uh, adopting, forgiving, restoring wor work that happened in and through Christ. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is kind of a central tether to all of this because it says, and all of this is because of grace. Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from works. God didn't pour out all his blessings because you were a good church boy or church girl and went to church and read your Bible every day and ate your vitamins and said your prayers. You were a lost, dead sinner. But God loved you and called you and has empowered you by his spirit into a new kind of life. But it's not from work so that you can't boast. You don't get to look at other people, especially people who aren't Christians and say, oh, the reason my God chose me, I'm better. Like I'm better than those people. I'm on a different spiritual level. Paul says, you can't boast. You are a dead sinner. God made you alive by his power, by his grace. It's all about God. As Basil said a few weeks ago, God is the hero of your story. You're not the hero of your story. God is the hero of your story. And so now what Paul's going to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is connect some of these 
big high-level ideas to ground-level realities of everyday life. And he wants to make sure the Ephesians don't understand their faith as something dualistic in terms of uh, kind of a Greek philosophical framework that says, well, there's kind of spiritual parts of life and then there's like material, like real life. And Jesus, I guess, maybe saved our souls or like what he did kind of kicks in when we go to heaven. But now down here in the real world, life just kind of continues on its own. Paul says, no, that dualism doesn't exist. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. You are called to new life in Christ. You're not called to a afterlife in Christ. That's coming. But you're called to new life right now. That's why in verse 1 he says, As a prisoner then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. He says, Your faith has immediate application and impact on this life right now. No matter what age you are, no matter what you're going through in life, no matter where God has positioned you, you are now called to live a life that is worthy, and the word that he uses there is axios, which means that fits or corresponds to your calling in Christ. You've been called in Christ, and he's not talking about called like, I've been called to pastoral ministry, or I've been called to be a missionary. Sometimes we use that language there. He's talking about the general call of God, the call of Jesus to say, come follow me, that every Christian responds to. Paul is saying, now I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, I'm encouraging you, to live a life that fits with that call. So right away, Paul's saying, what I don't want is for people to say, oh, I said a prayer, I'm a Christian now, I believe these things about God and Jesus, I'm gonna go to heaven one day, but now I'll just live life like however I want, because I'm saved, so I get to go to heaven, so I'll just live however I wanna live now. Paul says, no, that would be living in a way that doesn't fit your calling. You have to integrate your faith with your life so that not immediately but over time it lines up with the calling that you have to follow Jesus. So God's call and his generosity actually places a new kind of demand on our life, a new kind of challenge. I talked about this when I used the metaphor of being called onto the sports team. If you become part of the Vancouver Canucks, that's a gift. You, don't, you didn't earn your way there. The only way any of us in that room would get on that team is because if that position was gifted to us. But once it's gifted to you, there are new responsibilities, obligations, challenges that will come into your life that you have to live up to because now you're a Vancouver Canuck. You're no lo- your life is no longer your own. Other people are depending on you. You have a new identity. You now have to live into that identity. It might be challenge- challenging for you, But Paul says, I urge you to begin living a life worthy of the calling that you've received. We don't get to just be saved and then continue to live life on our own self-centered terms. The only way you can sustain that kind of theology is if you basically ignore almost all of the New Testament. Because so much of the New Testament is, now that Christ has come, now that we've placed our faith in Jesus, how should we live? In your marriages, do this. In your workplaces, do this. In this, here and there, as you go. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Oh, what does that look like? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's learn about it. Let's see what God's Word says. It's active and dynamic application. What does it mean to live for Christ? 
I want you to live a life worthy that matches this calling. Okay, Paul, I want to do it. Now just before you, I mean, we, we read the answer, but think about how you would answer that. If someone comes to you and says, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm pretty new, I don't really know where to start, what are like things that I need to be working on or doing? How do I begin to live for Jesus? I want to do it, but I don't really know how. Do I just go to church? Do I start reading the Bible? Where? Look where Paul begins. And he's addressing a whole church here. So this would have been a group of maybe 15 to 25 people who would have been maybe reading this together. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. So he actually lists four virtues, four postures of the heart, but also, also behaviors that he expects all Christians to begin to live into, begin to adopt. And certainly the subtext, as we'll move through Ephesians, is because these were, this is what it looks, this is who Jesus was. So if we're following Jesus, we have to put on his character. We're going to have different personality and temperament and different giftedness and different expressions of who we are. He'll get to that, we'll get to that next week. But there are some core unifying virtues that, this, that Paul says the Spirit of God wants to build into our hearts and lives. Humble. The Greek word is tepiniof, no, I, gotta say, I always got to say this slow, tepiniofrosene, tepiniofrosene, which means to live without arrogance. So Paul is saying the first thing you need to do is to just be completely humble, live a life that is completely devoid of arrogance, that sees yourself as better than other people or that you look down on those around you. You're not a hotshot. You're not better than other people. You're not holier than thou. You needed divine rescue. Jesus saved you. You've been saved by grace. You don't have any ground for boasting. And whenever I talk about humility, I love quoting Timothy Keller because he has the best definition of humility. I, I think I, I'm not sure if you can eclipse it. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Do you understand that distinction? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I don't matter. I'm just a, I'm just a worm. I'm just a terrible sinner. I'm, a, I'm not important. Everyone else is important. I'm not important. That's not humility. That's often a strange inversion of pride where we're trying to convince ourselves or display virtue signal to other people that we're so, so, we're so, so humble that not only are we just not arrogant, we're self-deprecating. And it's actually a way, I think, to virtue signal to people. And, and, and I, think, I think it's actually born in, in a certain kind of pride. And I know people like that in my life who are always broadcasting how humble they are. They might not say it that directly, but they're broadcasting it in different ways. And humble actually means just thinking of yourself less because you're increasingly God-focused and other people-focused. You're just not self-centered. And so there's just this sense of um, a lack of focus on the self. And, and, and this is why humble people are just so genuinely refreshing because when you engage with someone who's really genuinely humble, you just feel like you're the center of what's going on for them. They're totally dialed into you. Humble people just live without arrogance. They're not self-deprecating. They're not putting themselves down as if that's what humility means. Humility is just an honest recognition of who you are. 
I'm a sinner who's now a saint in Jesus, learning to follow him. And I live with that settled understanding. And I don't need to posture to people to make myself look greater out of pride or to make myself look greater by looking so lowly and servant-like and humble. I don't have to do either of those. I'm free in Jesus to, to just be completely humble. Then Paul says, I want you to be gentle. Protes in the Greek. And this is a difficult one to translate. It can mean mildness, like mild salsa. It's like mild. You're just kind of mild. Not medium. Definitely not hot. Mild. It's, a, it's an intentional contrast to harshness. Harshness of tone. Harshness of posture. Harshness of attitude or behavior. This is the same word that gets sometimes translated as meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the gentle, the mild. But it's important to understand the etymological roots of that word because in terms of our culture, what most people think of when they think of meek is that kind of shrinking person who's like, oh, I, I, I couldn't do that. Like, I'm just, I'm so humble and meek and lowly. And a person who intentionally lowers themselves or who is weak, who actually isn't really effectual, they don't actually have capacity to do anything. And that's not what this word means. If you think of a spectrum that goes from this side of the stage to that side of the stage, and this side of the stage is angry all the time. This side of the stage is never angry ever, ever, ever. Meekness, or prautos, is right in the middle. And it's a word that was used to describe domesticated animals. So if you had a horse that was no longer wild, but it was now broken and under the control of its master, that horse is prautos. That horse is now meek. That does not mean that horse is not powerful. And that does not mean that horse is not capable of doing extraordinary things. But its power has now come under control. And so one definition I think that's very good for meekness is strength or power that is under control. It's not, unbr it's not unbridled, literally. It's bridled. It's focused. It's the quality of being a strong person, being capable, but choosing to master yourself so that you can be a servant to other people. So when Paul says, be gentle, he's saying, when you have the power, even though you have the capacity to lord it over other people, to be domineering, I want you to learn, like Jesus did, to live in a way that is meek, where your power is under control, because that's what Jesus, Jesus had all kinds of power. At one point he said, when, when the script was playing out towards his crucifixion, he said, do you not think that if I wanted to, I could sort of just call upon my heavenly father and 10,000 angels? I have power at my disposal that would just blow your mind. I'm choosing not to use it for your benefit. That's what meekness is. It's not, um, it's not impetus in the face of challenges. It's a gentleness that brings power to bear in a way that's productive. Then he says, I want you to be patient macrothemia, which is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaint or irritation. And this is a virtue that many people believe they're strong in until they have children. And then the kind of the wheels begin to fall off a little bit. 
it's amazing on the near side of having kids where you judge parents and judge individuals and then on the other side of having children realize wow I thought I was a patient person I thought I was a selfless person I thought I knew how to stay calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and Paul says I want you to be patient people that's one of the ways you're going to live a life that fits with this calling is to learn patience One of the ways I think about patience is the cultivation of a non-anxious presence. I like that language of non-anxious presence, where in a sense what we're trying to do is cultivate an inner peace that comes from knowing Christ, and then we can bring that non-anxious, peaceful presence into situations that are charged. So we're not allowing the environment to get inside of us. We're allowing the peace of Christ, which is in us, to um, affect and push back on the anxiety or the disruption happening in our marriages, friendships, maybe a work, um, workplace issue. Paul says, I want you to be people who are patient. And lastly, he says, I want you to be people who bear with one another. And the word there is anekomai, which l- literally means to put up with or endure. And because of the way the grammar is, it's not clear whether it's, I want you to also endure with one another as you're persecuted or endure one another, put up with one another because there's just going to be annoyances and friction. And some commentators will lean either way, but I think it's probably a good, good reasons why you could imagine both and. And certainly pastorally, I would say the call to the church is both and. There are going to be times where we have to endure certain hardships together, like when Max uh, passed away last year. That's something we endure and bear with one another. And then as we get to know each other and we realize, yeah, each other are sinners being put back together by the grace of God. They're saints, but they bear evidence of a life before God. And if you spend enough time with me, there's going to be irritants, some small or some large, some emerging from personality, conflicts. I'm just emerging because I'm just immature in certain ways in my faith. And Paul says, I want you to be people who learn to put up with Jeff, to endure Jeff and some of his sinful idiosyncrasies. And I like that that's here because it doesn't allow us to have a really romanticized view of the church where everything's going to be amazing and we're going to be best friends with everybody and if we were all really following Jesus there'd never be fights and we'd all just get along and it would be awesome if that was the case Paul wouldn't have to say one of the things you're going to have to do to live up to your calling is to endure with one another is to put up with one another so there's a bit of a, a a breath that we can release and say oh yeah like God doesn't expect church communities who are learning to follow Jesus to have arrived We're saints, but we're all saints on the road of becoming more Christ-like, and we're learning. And often we learn through mistakes. And God is really, really patient with us on our journey. God often puts up with, he endures our one step forward, two steps back. God, I totally love you. And then in the next moment, "Eh, I think I'm gonna do my own thing. And yet God's spirit is still leading us forward. And Paul says you have to take your cue from God's love and look at each other and to say, don't expect perfection. 
And there's a challenging subtext here, which means, yes, Christians are going to disappoint you. Other Christians are going to let you down. You thought in this situation, this person would call. You presumed that because you're going through this, this is the way the church is going to respond. You thought that because you're walking through these waters, surely these people would react this way. Or you came to church one Sunday and you thought other people should know what you're walking with and no one went out of their way in your minds to connect with you. We're going to just disappoint each other, not even trying sometimes. Of course we will, because we're constantly, other people are going dis- to disappoint us because we're going to disappoint other people. And so there has to be this level of grace that's extended to each other and understanding. And it has to be born out of this intimate knowledge of God's love for us, where God loves me, I'm learning how to walk in that love, and so I don't put the burden on other Christians in my church to have to be perfect. I can have hopes and desires that they would rise and love me in ways that are awesome, but if they don't, I'm able to say, that was disappointing, but I also can forgive them and move on because they aren't the ultimate source of my light and my life. God is. But if we don't cultivate that central relationship, we can put unfair expectations on people in our small group, on our spouses, on our friends, on pastors, on whoever it is, and then when they don't come through on our terms, we can think, I'm slighted, and then maybe we church hop and go to another church. And Paul says, that's not the pattern that I want. I want you guys to learn how to put up with one another, how to endure together. And Paul says, the key to all of this is love. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And it's not the love that just comes from our own hearts. It's the love of God. Because he uses the word agape, which is very rarely used in the Greek. And it's the self-giving, self-emptying love that's used to define God's love for his people. So Paul is saying, the way you're going to do this is by learning to connect with the love of Jesus yourself and then walking in that love and extending it towards other people the same way that God extends it towards you. When you extended that love to someone and they didn't even say thank you, instead of getting in a huff about it, you're going to use that as a tool to remember how many times has God brought blessings into my life that I haven't taken two seconds to say thank you very much, God. I've just, car- I've just taken it and moved on. Love is that which seeks the welfare of other people, the good of the community. And love, Paul writes in Colossians, has a kind of binding property. If you're just practicing all these other like, patterns and behaviors and, okay, I'm going to be patient, I'm going to be doing this, you can do all those things without love. And mechanically and behaviorally, we can be kind of maturing, but Paul says, as he does in First, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, I can do all these things, but if I don't have love, it's kind of a waste of time. And he says in Colossians, therefore, as God's chosen people who are holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humil- humility, gentleness, patience. So he's cycling through some of, back with some of these themes to the, book of, uh, to the Colossian church. And he says, bear with one another, forgive one another, Even if you have any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So it's not just about trying to be more patient or trying to be more gentle. It is, but it's coming from a place of love. I want to grow in these things so that I can 
express the love of God more faithfully to my family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Number th- or verse three, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So he says, I want you to start living up to this calling. I want you to start living this way. But he goes even farther than that. He says, these things are critical, but I want you to make every effort to keep unity through the bond of peace. And the word that he uses there is very, very strong. It's spudazo, and it means zealous, intense effort. So when you think of an athlete training or someone who's just doing hard uh, manual uh, work, and they are just all out exertion, and they're focused, and they have a goal, they want to get this much done by this time, that is zealous energy. That is making every effort. And Paul says, that's what you need to do. It means more than simply being willing to be unified and keep the bonds of peace, as long as the conditions kind of make for it. I'm totally willing to get along with other Christians in my church. I'm totally willing to walk and be, I'm not here to make any trouble, and I won't make any trouble. So we'll be unified as long as the conditions are set up for it. That's being willing to live in unity. Paul says, I want you to fight. I want you to be zealous. I want you to make every effort to create and sustain unity. You've got to pursue this. You have to be proactive. There's a huge value placed on unity here. And Paul is saying to every single individual Christian, you've got to fight for it. You've got to do something every day, every week that builds unity and sustains peace. This is Paul saying, I want the church to be unified in its love for God and its love for each other and its going out into the mission of God at almost any price, at almost any cost. And that means everyone's got to make an effort. It means being proactive and making an intense effort to not just being willing to have unity, but to say, what could I do to strengthen unity in my church? What could I do to increase peace? What does it mean to make every effort? Let me share two things pastorally that I have found over the years to be very, very helpful personally and pastorally. So obviously the virtues that we talked about, learning to walk in gentleness, patience with each other, those are very, very key, but there'd be two other ones that I would want to draw your attention to. The first is, A, no longer regarding anybody from a human point of view. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who should live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then he says this, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, know, we do so no longer. Paul says, you have to learn to see every single person, every single Christian that you know, not from a worldly point of view, meaning they're just a, a, a collection of these experiences and these temperaments and this height and uh, this accent and this history. That's understanding people from a worldly or human perspective. He says, I want you to understand them through the eyes of God, which is they are a saint, they are loved by God. All these attributes that he's going to talk about in Ephesians and in the other books, they are a adopted son and daughter of the king. They are going to be spending eternity with God. They are, they are a recipient of grace. They are a member of Christ's body. They have been enlisted into the mission of God by Jesus himself. 
So let those things color how you interact with this person. Because you're not talking with someone who's merely a, um, who they are is, is more than just what we would think of as natural or human or cultural factors. The Spirit of God is now in and at work in that person. And so, you know, Paul is coming pretty close to saying, like, when you're talking with another Christian, you're, you're kind of, this is holy ground. There has to be a sense of reverence, right? When even two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am. And so we don't interact with each other from just a worldly point of view. The church is just kind of a social club and we get together and we all have our own different lives and, and whatever, but we're all kind of atomized individuals who are doing our own thing. Paul says, no, God's doing something bigger and God's doing something bigger in that person sitting beside you in the pew, behind you, the person that yeah, maybe you're not best friends with, maybe you don't get along with very well, but you have to temper how you talk about that person, how you interact with that person, because God has chosen that person. The Spirit is at work in that person. When you choose to see other people, other Christians, as redeemed image bearers in Christ, as family members who are dearly loved by God, it's very difficult to certainly actively mistreat them or dismiss, dismiss them. There is a kind of reverence that you begin to walk into your relationships with. And the second thing is, honor one another. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another and honor one another above yourselves. Unity and peace is sustained in church cultures where there's a disposition to honor one another. And again, this comes out of not seeing other people from a worldly point of view. If you understand that God loves this person and that this is a son or daughter of the king, it makes sense to honor them. To not just, in one sense, to not just put up with them, but to say, what would it look like for me to encourage them, to honor them, to give them place of preeminence, to say, hey, you, you know, in a sense, you, you, you go to the front of the line, to want to encourage them. As churches look for ways to honor each other, then what happens is you create a culture where instead of being quick to criticize, quick to condemn, assuming the worst, what happens is you begin seeing the genuine good. And it's not a naive, like I'm, not, I'm ignoring the fault lines of let's say Jeff, but it's just, I'm seeing more than just the fault lines and I'm seeing the work that God is doing in Jeff. And again, that softens how I approach Jeff, even if there's confrontation that needs to happen. And that's important because Paul says, I want you to be unified and to keep the bond of peace. But the peace that he's talking about is not the peace that exists when people are just avoiding talking about important things or doing things that need to be done, right? Like that's like a thin false piece where it's like, oh, there's tension here, there's things that need to be worked on, but we're just not gonna say anything and keep the peace. That's not what Paul has in mind. He says, Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and that's gonna take sometimes difficult, hard conversations. So. To live in the unity and peace doesn't mean we all just are nice to each other and never confront. In Jeremiah, the prophet says, the leaders dress the wounds of my people as though they weren't serious. And they say, peace, peace, when actually there is no peace. It's not a Christian virtue to have gaping, relational, emotional, psychological, spiritual wounds in a community and put some band-aids on it and be like, oh, it's all good. Jesus is great. Okay, we'll ignore it. Let's move on. 
That's not peace. That's not courage. That's not being the church. Being the church says, wow, this is a wound. It's going to fester unless we talk about this difficult thing, have this difficult conversation with this friend, confess this sin, move into a place of repentance. So as peacemakers, Christians have to be willing to courageously and painfully and honestly deal with the things that make for peace and to take away the the blockages that interfere with genuine peace taking root in a community. One commentator said this, to be a peacemaker is to be a fighter because the peacemaker makes trouble to make peace. The scripture enjoins us in the aggressive pursuit of peace. It tells us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification in Romans 14 and then Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. And again, that living at peace doesn't mean if I've hurt you, then you just pretend and say, well, I'll just forgive Jeff. You know, it really hurt me, but minimize it. But then that festers. It's coming and saying, Jeff, maybe you didn't mean to say this, or I'm sure you didn't, or maybe you didn't understand the effect on me, but when you said this, this is how it affected me. I just wanted you to talk, I want to talk about that with you, because I just want there to be short accounts, and I don't want this to fester, and then we have a good conversation, we pray together, and then it's done. That can be an awkward conversation, especially if that hasn't been done right away, and it's three months later, six months later, five years later, but to strive towards unity and for peace means those are the kinds of conversations that need to take place sometimes. We don't avoid saying important things or doing the things that need to be done. Verse four, five, and six, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What got repeated a lot in those three verses? One. Paul says, why why go through all this trouble? You know, you want to live for Jesus? Yes, be gentle, be patient, be bearing with one another. Oh, it's a lot of work. That's hard. Yeah, it is. But the nature of our faith is unitive. The Christian faith, it, we don't serve a fractured God with a fractured agenda. We are one church. We, we belong to the body of Christ of anybody all over the world who's unified in their love and devotion to Jesus. We follow one spirit. We have one hope. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. So unity and being unified is the lifestyle of the church that fits with the calling that they've been given by Jesus. And that's why it's important to fight for unity and to fight for peace. Because for us all to just to go our own way and do our own thing is a mismatch. It doesn't fit with our God who Father, Son, and Spirit is unified in love and in mission and has given us one baptism and one faith and given us one family to be a part of. And so we're to fight for unity, Paul says, because of, there's a theological, um, there's, a, there's a kind of a bigger, larger theological framework that informs why we're fighting for unity because our Christian faith is unitive. We, God is united Three persons in one, we are to be united. And even though that's hard, we are to strive towards that until Jesus returns. That's not a small, that's not like a side thing, like if we have time or if we get to it. This is one of the first things, again, that Paul says to do to those who are kind of saying, so how do I begin to follow Jesus? 
start to build into unity, start to cultivate peace within your community. So here are three questions that might be good for us to prayerfully reflect on today and the week ahead. Number one, which of the virtues that Paul lists in verse two do you think are personal strengths of yours or which are weaknesses? Which do you need to give attention to? Which are things that you would look at and say, either dismiss or hold at arm's length or to say, I don't want to do the work that that virtue demands or I wish I could just say, well, I'm an INFJ and a Myers-Briggs and so we're not really patient, so I don't have to worry about that. We can dismiss it that way instead of saying, no, this is a calling that I have in Christ. Which of those virtues needs to get your attention? Number two, what is one way that you could make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace this week? What's one way? Maybe it's sending a card of encouragement, an email. Maybe it's going out of your way to really pray for a handful of individuals or families in this church. Maybe it's making a meal for someone. I don't know, you pray about it, talk to God, say, what would be one way that I could love on someone in this church in a way that would build into unity. Maybe that's picking up the phone and saying, I've been avoiding having this conversation, but I think I've wronged you or I've been holding resentment against you that isn't right, and I'd like to talk to you about it and apologize face to face. That would be awesome. Hard, but that would be peacemaking. That would be amazing. And number three, how might these virtues apply not just to our, again, our relationship as a church, but in your friendships, your family, your marriage, your workplace, the cultivation of these things? How can I maybe take a few minutes and say, Holy Spirit, how, what would it look like for me? Could you give me an idea or a prompting? How could I bring this to bear in my workplace where there's such a lack of unity or a lack of peace or in this relationship where there's a lack of peace? Could you show me how to wisely do something, say something that would make for unity and peace in this situation? Because I'm tired of walking in disunity. I'm tired of walking in chaos. I'm tired of walking on eggshells. I'm tired of, of, of the fake peace where in this context of my life, we're kind of just avoiding talking about the things that we know we need to talk about, but it's just hard. Holy Spirit, will you help me? These are also good questions to reflect upon as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Because coming around the Lord's table to take bread and juice as a reminder of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for us is one of the most unifying practices that Christians can do together. Because we're saying we are all in this together. We are following one Lord and one faith. We've been baptized into the name of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are brothers and sisters together. And we're all, by eating the bread and taking the juice, communicating, we're part of the same family. And families have their issues. But healthy families are striving towards unity and peace. And when we come to this table, part of what we're declaring to ourselves and to each other by eating it is, this is hard, and I might not be able to take three steps ahead, but I can take another step this week. God, would you show me the things that make for peace? So what I'd like to do is I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to uh, play a song. Dan's going to play a song, and, it, and it'll serve as sort of a reflection into communion. It's a really beautiful song by Sandra McCracken, and it just reflects on the fact that we, in Christ, have this meal 
which is a precursor to a larger, more glorious meal. And I'm not talking about the potluck after church. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb when Jesus returns. And so this meal is meant to be a small foretaste of grace in the open presence of God. And it'll just, I think, really help us to set our hearts right. And then after that song, I'll come up and then we'll, uh, I'll invite the servers up and we'll do that together. So let me pray and then we'll play the song. God, as we prepare our hearts for this table, I pray that we would be unified, that this would be a church of deep unity and a church of genuine, real peace, and that you would help us to grow up to be mature, thoughtful, caring, loving, effective peacemakers. God, it is so exhausting to live in the context of disunity and disrepair and a lack of harmony. And I pray for individuals that are here, for marriages, for families, for extended families, for, you know, all of us probably have at least one dimension of our life where that disunity is just draining us and it's exhausting us and it's discouraging us. And I pray, God, as we take this food and this drink, that we would take time to recognize that we can have peace in you and that you would work in our hearts and have this peace overflow to the relationships where we need it most, God. Thank you in Jesus' name.